Aguilar, and this is your call. When today's guest, Professor Jen Jackson, was in high school, they weren't taught many lessons that focused on the contributions of Black women in history. And when they were, their schools were selective in what they taught. Harriet Tubman was the only Black woman Professor Jackson came across in their history class. They were told Harriet Tubman was a fugitive slave who freed hundreds of enslaved Black people via the Underground Railroad, but they didn't learn that Tubman was a military leader in the Civil War. Outside of school growing up, Professor Jackson was exposed to a majestic group of Black women gospel singers in their tiny two-bedroom home in East Oakland. In 2009, 22-year-old Oscar Grant was killed by BART police officer Johannes Meserly at the Fruitvale BART station in Oakland, a station Professor Jackson had frequented growing up. They were only 24 at the time. They write that Oscar Grant's death was so personal, so intimate. It was the first time a police killing truly shattered them. So they called their mom and asked about the black women who wrote those books on the bookshelf at home. Their mom introduced them to writers like Alice Walker and Terry McMillan. That led Professor Jackson down a path of searching for and digging into black feminist literature. They write, in taking in all of this literature on black women's theorizing and activism, I had found a mirror of my own realities and those of the women I had encountered as I grew up. Having now discovered parts of myself that had been neglected and had grown over with insecurities, I became obsessed with understanding myself, society, and the potential for a more just world. So I kept reading. Well, that led Professor Jackson down a path of becoming an educator and an author. Their first book, Black Women Taught Us, An Intimate History of Black Feminism, explores the legacy of black women writers and leaders and shows how they've been at the center of modern liberation movements. Professor Jackson pulls wisdom from the writings of many black women like Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Shirley Chisholm, as well as the women in their own life. Professor Jackson says these women have taught us how to fight racism, how to name that fight, and how to imagine a more just world for all. Professor Jen Jackson calls their new book a love letter to black women. Professor Jen Jackson is an award-winning professor of political science at Syracuse University and a columnist for Teen Vogue, where they write the popular Speak On It column that explores how today's social and political life is influenced by generations of racial and gender disorder. A queer, gender flux, and androgynous black woman, Professor Jackson's primary research is in black politics with a focus on black feminism, racial trauma and threat, gender and sexuality, and social movements. Hi, Professor Jackson. Congratulations on this fantastic book, and thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. Well, thank you. I mean, you really put it together. It was just so interesting reading about your story. And I first want to say, I love how you put this book together. So for example, Harriet Jacobs taught me about freedom. Ida B. Wells Mm -hmm. taught me radical truth telling. Ella Baker Mm -hmm. taught me why we should listen to young people. Uh, Shirley Chisholm taught me to hold whiteness accountable. I love how you how you did that. Can you just talk Mm. about, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that writing a book is a lot of work. So can you just talk about how you put all of that together? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would like to be very clear here that I'm, I'm lucky in that even though I've never taken a black feminist politics course, I teach one now, you know, this, this book is based on a course that I designed for young people back when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago between 2014 and 2019. I've now taught this course every single spring at Syracuse University to young people, juniors and seniors, and it's been really fulfilling for me. So this book is both a a culmination of my own black feminist journey, my own black feminist curiosity. It is absolutely about those women you talk about, my mother, my aunts, who were in my living room when I was, you know, an eight and nine year old on Wednesday evenings, you know, teaching me how to make chicken properly and wear lipstick with earrings, you know. And it's also about that journey I had, you know, in graduate school and postgraduate school to really dig into this literature and understand what it means both for me and for the young people that I am educating and mentoring. 
Given your experience in high school, and and when listeners start calling in, I'd love to hear about the Black women you learned about or didn't learn about when you were in school. Given that you were only taught about a, a certain portion of Harriet Tubman, really not the radical Harriet Tubman, what do you hear from your students today? What were they taught in high school? I love that question. You know, I I ask them this all the time. You know, it's it, that's one of the great things about having a course you teach every single spring is you can ask the same question and you're always surprised by the answers. So, you know, they they are also always surprised when I tell them that Harriet Tubman was actually a general, that she, you know, actually used strategy to go back and save hundreds more enslaved black folks and that she was working with the actual folks in the North, the Union Army, to think about how to build a campaign against the the peculiar institution of slavery. You know, they also don't know this. And it's always, you know, maybe one or two students in the class who raises their hand and say, I think I've heard this before. And so I always look at them and say, hey, everyone, I know you've got a computer. Why don't you just hit that Google, you know? (laughs) Um, and And they're always shocked, you know, and it's not just, the story of, of Harriet Tubman being a general, they're very surprised when I also share with them the story of Sarchi Bartman, the, the uh, hot and tot Venus who was used um, to, her body co-opted and used to, to be portrayed in freak shows um, and, and showed as kind of a, the, the extreme version of the African uh, body and how her body was stored, her genitals were stored. Um, in in a museum so that people could come and look on like there are so many stories about the ways that black women's experiences um, across the world have been kind of hidden from us and have not entered the archives because they they don't cast a very positive light on the folks who mistreated them and who who um, rather than treating them as human often treated them as, as chattel and as as possessions I have I'd never heard of Sartji Sarah Bartman until reading your book. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, so since we brought this up, let's just die. I was going to ask you about this later in the show, but let's talk about this now. You write, black women's bodies have long been caricatured and commodified for white Americans who viewed our bodies as animalistic and non-human. The earliest mm-hmm. example you learned of was Sarji Sarah Bartman, born in South Africa's East Cape in 1789. In 1810, mm-hmm. after years of hardship, including the deaths of her parents and her infant child and the murder of her partner, Bartman signed a contract with an English surgeon who intended to take her to London and Paris for shows. So, so tell us more about this. Yeah, so so Sergeant Sarah Bartman was, she was uh, one, and I want to say this to be clear, this is not a, a unique and anomalous story. She was a young black woman who found herself essentially orphaned. Um, she had no partner. Her, children, her child had passed away. Her parents had passed away. And she was living uh, destitute. This is the era of, of um, it's just off the era of enslavement. So there are still ways that, um, you know, white is, is folks who are used to enslaving, folks who are used to simply taking um, Africans from the continent of Africa and, and taking them all over the globe for the purpose of, of free labor, they're still trying to figure out a way to exploit African folks for, for capitalistic gain. And one of the myths at, at this time that arose was the myth of the Jezebel. The Jezebel is the, the overly sexed African uh, woman, the overly sexed black woman um, whose body is kind of constantly exposed and um, who, who is so animalistic in, in her nature um, that she doesn't actually feel um, emotions in the same way. She's just kind of, um, she's only uh, operating under the guise of her lasciviousness. And, you know, they, they took this myth, this stereotype, and used it as a lens through which uh, they would have onlookers in these freak shows in London and Paris. They would have them uh, view Sarchi Sarah Bartman, and they would dress her up in these very extravagant costumes, you know, um, you know skin-tight, very sheer um, hosiery. They would put her in these leotards with feathers and um, and have her look, you know, they were trying to kind of um, caricature the, the African uh, idea that folks had in their minds. And they would trot her around, uh, and she wouldn't be paid often for these appearances. Um, they would put her in a cage 
or have her emerging out of these kind of cave-like uh, structures to kind of really play on the way that folks viewed African folks at the time. She also was said to have kind of um, very extreme uh, bodily features, so a very large derriere, very large breast. And so this was part of the way that they marketed her. And even the drawings of her body are very, very exaggerated. And so as this continued to happen, you know, she's a young woman, but she's miserable. She's miserable. Um, she develops the, the dependencies on alcohol. She's self-medicating because she's a very, you know, sad person. She's not being paid um, for this caricature. She's just being exploited for her body. It's a, it's a hypersexualizing of her body. And, you know, she dies a, a, a very sad kind of early death. And rather than allowing this young woman to rest in death, they, they treat her, her body posthumously as if she is still a part of this freak show. You know, they take her, her body parts and they create a cast of her body um, to keep it on display. Um, they take actually her brain, and they are start to uh, think through what her what the implications are. This is the era of pseudoscience, so they were still thinking about um, if there were areas of the brain they could look at to see the differences between Africans and, and Black Americans and other races of folks. And they essentially dissect her, and and um, they didn't return her body to her homeland for for decades. You know, so this. This story, you know, I had heard of Sarchi Bartman when I was much younger, but I never knew the details, right? I never knew um, how devastating her story was. I never knew how much they treated her um, as if she were a, 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 an animal um, or, or, or a specimen, you know, not human at all. And this is a story that unfortunately hasn't really entered our history books because it doesn't, it doesn't cast a very good, a very good light. Um, on early folks in power, on white, white Americans and, and Europeans who were very much invested in making money off of Africans and black Americans. How do your students respond when you teach them about Sartre Bartman? You know, it's, it's really interesting because I, 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 and I really appreciate this question because I talk about uh, critical race theory in the book, too, and I talk about Ida B. Wells and telling the truth. You know, there's this idea that we can't talk to young people about the truth of our history. But in my experience, that's it's actually, it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, I'm very honest with my students. I teach them about Sarchi Bartman. I teach them about uh, the experiences that Ida B. Wells had trying to tell the truth about lynching and how she was driven from her own hometown and almost killed for it. You know, I talk to them about uh, Zora Neale Hurston dying of malnutrition because her community didn't support her writing when she was alive. And, you know, I teach students of all, races, of all races and ethnic backgrounds, students who are from all over the world. And I find when you, when you teach students, when you tell students that this is, this is serious history, this is, this is history and, and theory that needs to be honored and taken seriously, they do. And, and they end up very angry. <laughs> they end up just as angry as I was at the beginning of the book when I realized that I hadn't been taught these things. They, 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 they feel empowered, but they also feel, you know, mobilized. They feel as if there's more work for them to do. They wonder then, you know, what else haven't I been told? That's, that's what I mean by a black feminist curiosity, right? That there, there, there are so many stories. Like this book is only 368 pages, so I couldn't have told everything. <laughs> And, and there are more. There are so many more I could tell you about on this call, you know. And that's where my students usually end up. They, they, it starts them on their journey. It makes them excited, but also so very disappointed. Right. Well, and it, it sounds like the exact experience you had growing up. Mm -hmm. Because, as you say, you didn't have access to these incredible black feminists, not even at the most elite colleges. I mean, we talked about right. what happened in high school when you learned just one portion of Harriet Tubman, mm -hmm. but you write that the predominantly white campuses you gained access to uh, just, there was a major lack of a willingness and a desire to center black studies and especially black mm -hmm. feminism in their curricula. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. I I went to the University of Southern California as an undergrad. I majored in industrial engineering. 
And, you know, you know, when you're an undergrad and you've got a couple extra courses to take and you're like, oh, let's look over there in sociology and see what's, what's going on. And when I tell you I searched that course catalog for hours, for days, just trying to find a black feminist politics, a black feminist theory course. And when I went to go ask around, I found that they actually didn't even have a professor on campus who had the skill set to teach it. They kept telling me, oh, there's this one class. And when I went to go see what that class was, it was a black politics class, and it was taught by a very well-known black man. And while I was excited about this course and everyone was taking it, I read through the literature, and there was no conception of gender. There was no conception of how gender entered the conversation. There was no conception of queerness and transness and disability and all of these intersections that had already reflected so much of my life, the lessons that I had learned from my mother and from my grandmothers and my aunts, they simply weren't there. And I, I, I knew that I knew they existed, right, <laughs> because I had met these women and I had started reading these books. Um, so rather than, rather than settling, right, rather than settling and, and just taking the African-American politics course and thinking that was the, 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 the sum total of what was available, I just kept going. And even into graduate school at the University, the University of Chicago, um, there was one professor and who ended up actually being my dissertation advisor, Kathy Cohen, who taught black feminist politics. And unfortunately, you know, it's one of those things where she wasn't teaching me in the right semester and then I was leaving and then I never got to take it, you know? And that's, that's really, it's really, I talked to more people about this and it's really common. It's very common that there's these courses and it's not just black feminist politics, it's queer studies, it's disability studies. It's rampant where these courses that are about these experiences that are so critical and so pertinent to this, this political moment, they're very hard to find. And that's why I wanted to put them in the book. I, I, I honestly wanted someone to be able to walk in the Barnes & Noble, pick up this book, and never have to search for that course again. You tell this great story, and I think this just speaks to the power of what one book can do to a person. You write about going to Borders on a Saturday morning in Orange County, California, yeah. You were frantically searching for the books that were on your mom's shelf, and you came across Melissa Harris Perry's Sister Citizen. That's you right. say that the cover was immediately striking. It featured a black woman's face, her eyes closed, her head shaved, with the American flag overlaying her skin, and you had to know That's what right. was inside. It was so interesting, Professor Jackson, to read about just the profound impact that one book had on you. Yes, yes. I will never forget that morning, you know, and I, I'm so sad that Borders books no longer exist. <laughs> um, but, you know, that that morning happened because I had been going through a lot of um, trials related to race and gender and class and disability at work. You know, I was a, a young person. I was um, a young black woman who uh, was working at Disneyland in Orange County, in Orange County, California, in Anaheim. You know, I was the only person on my team who had a, a college degree, and I was kind of feeling trotted out. You know, I felt like the token black girl, and I didn't have any language to help me to articulate or to metabolize what was happening to me. You know, I, I felt something, right? I felt that I was being treated differently, but I didn't have the words for misogyny and massage noir. I didn't have the words for the unique forms of sexism and racism that affect black women. And so I, I called my mother and I was like, I need help. You know, like, what were all those books? And she just started listing them out. And that's when I, I walked into the Barnes and I walked into the Borders books and I saw, I saw Melissa Harris, Harris book. And what was important about seeing her book is that Melissa Harris Perry is trained as a political scientist. Mm -hmm. And that book drew me in because she was also talking about power. And I distinctly understood when she talked about this idea of a crooked room. I, I, I read the first few pages. I sat there in Borders and I'm reading the book and I'm crying at Borders, you know. And I'm like looking at these pages and I'm like, oh my gosh, I see myself in here. She talked about these stereotypes, the sapphire, the, the angry black woman, the Jezebel, the lascivious hypersex black woman, the mammy, the asexual black woman whose only care is to take care of the white family. 
And she talked about how all of these stereotypes and ideas create a crooked room, you know, a, a, a room that black women are forced to stay in regardless of our identities, our intersections, and how we see ourselves. And when she said this, I imagined myself, you know, bent over, hunched over, trying to fit into these spaces. And that's exactly what I felt like at work every day. That's what I felt like walking around in Orange County, one of the most conservative counties in the country. And I saw the the bibliography and I saw who she was citing and I followed that bibliography. And that's how I discovered Bell Hooks. Mm. That the next thing I read was that was feminism is for everybody. That was the first officially uh, black feminist writing I had ever read. And the next thing I read was Audre Lorde. And it, it, if it wasn't for Miss Harris Page's book, I wouldn't have discovered, you know, I wouldn't have discovered Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde. Where else would I have found them? Because I couldn't find a black feminist politics course. It was after reading that book and after discovering Melissa Harris Perry that I discovered Kathy Cohen, who I remind you was my dissertation advisor. I ended up going to the University of Chicago and working with Kathy Cohen in part because I found that book. It, it shifted the whole course of my life and of my academic career. I was I thought I was going to retire from Disneyland. I thought I was going to work there forever. And instead, I, I, I left. <laughs> I left, and I went and got a Ph.D., and, and now I'm here writing this book. That's an ama- amazing story. Today we're speaking with Jen Jackson, an award-winning professor of political science at Syracuse University. We're talking about their brand-new book, Black Women Taught Us, An Intimate History of Black Feminism. It explores the legacy of black women writers and leaders, and shows how they've been at the center of modern liberation movements. If you'd like to join us, if, if anything you're hearing from Professor Jackson resonates with you, if a, if a book about black feminism or women or history really kind of altered your life and you'd like to share that story with us, we'd love to hear from you. And then what are your thoughts about just what were you taught in school? How did you find information that was more than just the surface that so many of us learn in in high school. You can give us a call at 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. Professor Jackson, I have to say, I'm just imagining your book in an independent bookstore right now. I mean, it's Black History Month and independent bookstores do such a good job of showcasing amazing books. And to think that a, a, a young woman is going to pick up your book and, and have a similar mm-hmm. experience as yours to Melissa mm-hmm. Harris Perry's. That's, I think that's the most meaningful thing about having written it. You know, that's the exact reason why I wrote it. You know, I, when I talked to my editor at Penguin Random House in, back in 2018, she asked me, you know, what books are on your mind? A, there were no books on my mind at the time. I was like, oh, you want me to write a book? That's interesting. Um, and when I talked to her about it, the first thing I said was, well, I need, if I'm going to write a book, I need it to be accessible. You know, this needs to be a book for the young people. It needs to be a book that my grandmother can pick up, a book that my mother can read. The church mothers at Evergreen Missionary Baptist Church where I was raised, I want them to see themselves reflected. And for me, even though, you know, I'm a professor at an elite university, I've got these, you know, elite accolades to my name, I'm always going to be that girl from Oakland, right? I'm always going to be that girl who was was queer and was trying to figure out how to locate myself in this broader society that had all these constraints and ideas about how little black girls should look and how they should behave. You know, all these notions about what young black girls were supposed to do, whether it be, you know, how we emote and how we love and how we show up um, or, you know, what social movement issues and concerns we fight for. You know, I, I always felt the pressures of those issues and concerns. And it wasn't until I started picking up black feminist literature that I had language and I had community. I had other black folks, queer folks, black women to have those conversations and to see myself reflected back. 
so for me, you know, the young people who have been coming up to me on the book tours, the young queer and trans folks and the young black women, and some of the, you know, I will say some of the, the black women in their golden years, you know, I've, I've met some retirees who, who love this book, you know, and that is so meaningful um, to me that black women and black queer folks read this book and they're saying thank you to me. They're saying thank you for, for archiving our experiences and for and for telling our story in reference to so many black foremothers and elders who have been doing this work. There is this idea that we don't exist, you know, that our work doesn't exist. But we've existed for so very, very long. And that's part of what this project is, too. It's a reclamation. It's to say that we're here. We've been here. And I don't want anyone else like I did to feel like like they're alone. We're going to take a quick break. Today, we're spending the hour with Professor Jen Jackson, who's out with a new book, Black Women Taught Us, An Intimate History of Black Feminism. They write, in this book, I focus on those voices that are too often overlooked, imagined away, watered down, and simply ignored by white people, institutions, and the authority of the state. I write each essay as a love letter to the women who led me back to myself, the women who built our movements and taught us how to love ourselves whole. Black women taught us how to listen and work. It is time we do both. This is your call. We'll be back after this. This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. We wanted to let you know that we have a very important election coming up in California. We are going to choose our next senator and the top two vote getters will then be on the November ballot. So we are trying to ensure that the Democrats running for Senate join our show to answer your questions. If you do have questions for these potential senators, we'd love to hear from you. Your call at KALW.org, and we'll let you know when we confirm them. We hope you can join us for tomorrow's show, six months after those devastating fires that destroyed Lahaina. Residents in Maui are still struggling to find stable housing. As the recovery efforts move ahead, will Hawaii lawmakers put people over profits? If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email your call at KALW.org. And if you'd like to join today's conversation with Professor Professor Jen Jackson about their new book, Black Women Taught Us, An Intimate History of Black Feminism. You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org. Jen Jackson is an award-winning professor of political science at Syracuse University and a columnist for Teen Vogue. You can learn more about their work at yourcallradio.org. Let's hear from a caller. Let's go to Paul in to Madeira. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Hello. Th- thank you for ha- having me. I hope you can hear me clearly from the storms here. Yeah, you're fine. I, I, well, I'm listening to the show, and I, I have to take some umbrage at, at, at what what's taking place. Not that it's not important for someone to write a book about a personal issue that they they want to uh, share with the public, but I never I've never heard of any drive uh, in especially in our government, the uh, Secretary of Education to universalize history books and civic books throughout the country. Different, different states, different localities in different states have completely different history books, excuse me, not completely, but with large gaps of changes, even though from the same publishing house to satisfy sales. Doesn't, I have never been able to com- understand that since I was 15 years old, why there isn't one universal history book or civics book that's taught throughout the country. It makes us one country, and it makes the point of who we are and where we came from. With Proviso, as I said, it's nice to hear this written, but you can't, you don't have time to put everything in, but we could balance by... Well, thank you for the call, Paul. I think Professor Jackson's (laughs) argument is, first off, they learned a watered-down version of Harriet Tubman. I mean, that's just unacceptable, no matter... You know when, and, and we we know from young people today that they're hungry for this information, and in many schools mm-hmm. they're just not getting it. But to Paul's point about history book publishing, given that you're a scholar, what are your thoughts about this? That what you learn in Texas is what you'll you'll learn something different in you know South Carolina, Montana, and California. What, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, and I appreciate the question. I think that this is a, a, it's a major concern as an educator and also as a mother, right? I have three children, and this is something I think about constantly when I think about where I want my kids to live and how I want them to be educated. You know, I, this is why I talk in the book about the attacks on critical race theory um, and the ways that across this country we have this kind of really conservative push to change what the curriculum is that's taught to our children. Also, um, the banning of books. Right. So I, I think that the idea of having kind of a, a universal um, history book and a history process here in curriculum is it's never going to happen. Right. Because we know that we are a country that is a, is a federalist system. It's a, it's a system of cooperative federalism. We, we work with both the national and the state and local levels um, to ensure that the states have rights that are protected. And the way that we have offered rights to the state level is that they get to decide what happens with education. But what this does mean is that we as uh, constituents should have standards and expectations for our leaders to teach our young people the truth, mm-hmm. right? That's what I'm, I'm getting at in the project, in the book. The book is really about revealing the truth, right? And unfortunately, we're at a time where the truth is scary to a lot of people because it reveals a history that folks don't want to face. This idea that young people will be overwhelmed by it or they're not ready for it is not fair to young people. And it doesn't, it doesn't raise adults and citizens who are ready for the real world. So I, I appreciate the question, and I put this question and this responsibility back to voters and back to constituents in the areas of the country where their leaders are taking away uh, the true history from young people. That's what we should be fighting every single day. That's part of the reason why I wrote the book. I was hoping that some of those young people would happen upon it um, and make a difference in their own communities. We have to all fight those types of um, erosions in our own ways. And also, in the case of your book, Professor Jackson, Black Women Taught Us, we're talking about black women here that have been whitewashed, ignored, left out of the history books. And I have to say, reading your book, I thought about this amazing quote from the incredible Native activist and poet John Trudell. And I think you'll, you'll, this will resonate with you. He said, we are the survivors. We are the evidence of their crimes. They don't want us as a reminder of what they did. Mm, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, I mean, I love that, actually. Um, and I think it absolutely resonates with what some of the women I write about, you know, talk about. In their book. This is very Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer, in her life, fought on behalf of disenfranchised poor black folk in the south specifically in mississippi and she endured all manner of harm throughout her life and she's she's credited and known for saying none of us is free until all of us are free you know and the point of that is that if we're not fighting for the most vulnerable of us if we're not ensuring that those who are the most vulnerable have their needs met then what are we doing and that's absolutely true that there are the most vulnerable, right, the folks who are the most exposed, the folks who are the most likely to experience these harms are the ones who are often the most watered down and not allowed to enter the archive. We see this in terms of trans rights right now. You know, mm-hmm. folks don't want to hear what's happening to trans folks. And I think that's, that's evidence of this, you know, survival, right? That's evidence of um, bearing the scars of these systems. For some of us, we have no choice but to speak out about what has happened, right? And for me, having witnessed my, my grandmother's toil and work their whole lives, having witnessed my aunt's, uh, you know, struggle with cancer and heart disease and largely preventable ailments that they didn't have health access for or time off of work to take care of, you know, having my own mother be, you know, pretty much the subject of something like the Daniel Moynihan report, is enough for me to know who these survivors are. They are, they are the black women in my life, you know, and I think that more people um, need to take that seriously, and I'm hoping with this project they do. 
So to talk a little bit more about Fenny Lou Hamer, as you point out, she bravely rejected respectability. You write, Fenny Lou Hamer was critically important to civil rights and justice work because she shifted the focus away from the mainstream ideas about black respectability and traditional notions of citizenship that predominated the church-led movements of the time. Instead, as you said, she declared that nobody's free until everybody's free. Her focus was on the least of us rather than the most most respectable of us. It, this is just such an important point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Respectability, you know, is, and I, I, I try to also you talk about this in the book because some people, you know, we we have to survive however we survive. This is another thing I tell my, my students. Respectability politics, it's, it's helpful because it also is a way for, for black folks to survive, right? There are some folks who are able to engage in certain ways of being that allows them protection, um, it allows them proximity to power, and it, it allows them to stay alive. Fannie Lou Hamer rejected respectability. She rejected the idea that we should assimilate into a kind of mainstream uh, white culture, that we should comport ourselves to these rules that are typically re- related to being upper to middle class. And she was okay um, with being perceived as a poor working class woman who was fighting on behalf of poor and working class people. And what that means is that her work was grounded in this notion that all black people are valuable. All black people deserve freedom and liberation. And it shouldn't be contingent upon, um, you know, whether or not they're an angel, right, to think about how Michael Brown was talked about after he was killed, you know. Um, It shouldn't be contingent upon uh, black people being perfect, right? There is no other uh, group that is required to essentially be angelic in order to have human rights, you know? And that's that's why I really focus on Fanny in the book, because she wanted folks to really understand that humanity and rights should not be based on our own moralistic judgments of someone's goodness, right? It, it shouldn't be based on how we personally feel about any group, right? Humanity should just be given, offered, allowed, received. Um, and, I, and I hope that that's conveyed <laughs> in the book. Unfortunately, I don't see it much in society. We have another question from a listener who wanted to ask you, how did you choose the women to focus on, given that there are so many? Right. I love this question as well. Um, so what's really in- interesting about who's in the book is, so first, the, the book used to be, 10 essays. Um, I originally did not include the 11th essay, which is about bell hooks. The, the 10 essays I include, um, the first is Harriet Jacobs, and the lesson there is on freedom. Um, this was really important to me because actually this is, how I, this is how I started thinking about freedom. I included these lessons and these people based on my own journey. When I wanted to understand freedom, I read Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Um, when I read Ida B. Wells, that's when I started thinking about black feminist truth-telling. That's why she's the chapter on truth. So this actually is a reflection of my own, you know, feminist journey. Uh, people who know me as a writer know that Zora Neale Hurston is my, she wrote my favorite book. She wrote Their Eyes Were Watching God. Um, and Zora Neale Hurston wrote what some people would describe as very blackly. You know, she wrote in African-American dialect during the Harlem Renaissance when that wasn't very popular. And what's important about Zora is if, if you read that chapter, chapter three, um, I talk about her writing, but I talk a lot about Zora, the person. Um, the reason why she was important to me to include in the book was because of her life. She lived a very kind of rebellious life, um, and she was largely rejected by other writers at the time, other black writers at the time. Um, but she died of, of malnutrition, and Alice Walker um, actually was the person who came and reclaimed her life. She found Zora Neale Hurston's body in an unmarked grave, and she helped to bring Zora Neale Hurston back into our lexicon, to bring her back into the conversation on American literature. So I really bring that into the book to talk about the reclamation of our labor. Um, I, I write about Ella Baker um, and her leadership of young people in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Chapter 4. Chapter 5 is Fannie Lou Hamer, which we've talked about, and being unrespectable. 
chapter six is on uh, Shirley Chisholm, and she was very much unbought and unbossed. And it took me a while to understand what that meant, but I opened the chapter talking about an experience I had at USC where I had a, a professor who openly uh, referred to uh, white American culture as a culture of genocide. And that was shocking to me at the time. I mean, shocking. And I bring that in to talk about Chisholm because she was that kind of person. She would walk around with a megahorn, a, a, a megaphone, <laughs> you know, in her communities, um, speaking against uh, a racism and against white supremacy. Uh, Toni Morrison, I talk about because I wanted to really think through um, this idea of magic, um, black girls being magic, and this kind of uh, the last 10 years or so of the black girl magic movement. And I really wanted us to move away from magicalness towards power. Um, and I talk about Kumbahi River Collective, I talk about identity politics. The words get thrown around a lot in, in uh, the mass public, but I don't think that people actually know that we all have identity politics. We all carry identities in our bodies, and we absolutely act in political ways based on those. Um, I talk about Audre Lorde. In, in part, to, to really draw out her conversation on self-care, people associate Audre Lorde with the self-care movement, but they don't know that the reason why she talked about self-care so much toward the end of her life is because she was dying of cancer. And a lot of her self-care work came after she had gone through uh, these, these awful experiences looking at her own mortality. And I wanted to really draw out what it means that so many black feminist teachers um, pass away early. They pass away in their 50s and their 60s, and they pass away in ways that are very, uh, very, very, very tragic. Um, chapter 10 is about Angela Davis, anti-racism and abolition. Um, she is the one person uh, in the book, besides the members of the Combahee River Collective, um, who is still with us. And that was really important to me to honor her um, while she is here. Chapter 11, I added... Um, after Bell Hooks passed away. Mm -hmm. And this is a very meaningful chapter for me because I had to acknowledge the fact that it was an oversight of mine not to include Bell Hooks in the first place. Bell Hooks has been such a critical, um, a, a critical theorist and, um, and foremother and elder, I think, for so many of us. Bell Hooks is responsible for whole generations of black feminists and I do think that she was taken for granted in her life. And I wrote that chapter as a eulogy. You know, I wrote that chapter as an apology to say, you know, I think I did that too. I think I took you for granted too, Belle. And I think I did it when I wrote this first draft of this book. So this, this, this outline, this, this, this table of contents is extremely personal. And, and it also reflects exactly what I teach my students in my class. So I'm, I'm lucky that I've been able to curate that, that, um, that scholarship, but it's absolutely about my personal journey. Well, it's an amazing book. I hope you can get your hands on it. Today, we're talking with Professor Jen Jackson about their new book, A Love Letter to Black Women. It's called Black Women Taught Us, An Intimate History of Black Feminism. We're almost out of time. I think we could probably have you back many more times to talk about all of these incredible women that you write about. A lot of people are very familiar with Ida B. Wells. I, I'm not sure if they're familiar with what you focused on. Well, one aspect of what you focused on in the chapter about Ida B. Wells, you know, exposing lynching in the South and how even for some members of the black community, Ida B. Wells just went too far. And That's she stood right. up to that. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. That was. Thank you for bringing this up. Um, that was another thing that was important for me to raise in this book to show uh, that when a lot of these black women were facing uh, uh, challenges and obstacles, it wasn't just from institutions and you know non-black people. It was also from folks in their own communities. Ida was writing about lynching. Um, you know, her, her pamphlet, Southern Horrors, came out in 1892. So this is only about 30 years after the end of slavery. And a lot of the, the black uh, leadership that emerges during this time, you know, specifically thinking about W.E.B. Du Bois, they're, they're, more, um, they're more 
uh, kind of elite focused. They're they're attached to universities, very elite universities. They're the Har- the Yales and the Harvards, and and they are um, moving in in these elite academic circles with white abolitionists who are invested in building institutions to assist in the long term um, kind of redress of slavery for Black Americans. So when the NAACP is started. Um, there's this whole um, question around who will be included, right? Who will be the, 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 the 40 people or so who are included in the founding of this organization? And there's a whole back and forth. And, and Ida ends up being excluded from the original kind of drafting of, of the, the black people who are included. So a, a lot of people don't know that um, these organizations were also started by non-black people. And what they argued was that, you know, Ida was just too radical. She was writing about lynching. She, in, in Southern Horrors, she suggests that for uh, black Americans to uh, address this issue, they have to arm themselves, you know. Um, she is, is speaking directly against um, the mob violence in the South, and she believes that the answer is resistance. Whereas uh, many of the folks that she's intermingling with, uh, the black folks who are more elite, they're saying, well, we've got to work through policy. We've got to work through the, the systemic change. And I just kind of over that. Right? I just kind of like, you know, the press is corrupt. The institutions are corrupt. And we've got to overthrow them. And so they, they essentially said, you know what, I, we don't think that there's a place for you here. Um, and, and they later tried to come back and say, oh, it's okay, we'll, we'll add you back. <laughs> and she's like, no thanks, you know. Um, it's interesting, right, because for someone like Ida, who, you know, in, 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 this, in this day and age, we now respect her as one of the greats, you know, one of the earliest kind of investigative journalists who exposed lynching in its, in its true form, in her time, she could not get her comrades in her community to take her seriously and to treat her work with the respect it deserved. So it was important for me to highlight not just that she did it, right, not just that she put her life at great risk and peril to, to, to expose what she would say is a threadbare lie, um, but that she also experienced a great deal of challenge and obstacle from people who I think today we would argue should have absolutely been in her corner. That was fascinating to learn. And then the other piece of this chapter about Ida, Ida B. Wells, which is fascinating, you write about Mary Church Terrell, who was one of the founders of the NAACP. She was one of the first yeah. black women in the country to earn a college degree, attending Oberlin mm-hmm. College. She became the first black woman appointed to the Board of Education in Washington. Mm-hmm. And Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell really disagreed on approaches. Yeah. Terrell said <laughs> black people should engage in traditional methods of racial uplift, mm-hmm. while Ida B. Wells advocated for direct action and grassroots confrontations. That's right. They did not get along. <laughs> it's well documented that they um, had what we would call static or friction over the course of both of their careers. And it was very hard for Ida because Mary Church Terrell was very established and very well respected. And this is something I wanted to also be clear about in the book. Neither one of them was wrong, right? Neither one of them was incorrect in their approach. They were just different. We, you know, people talk about this frequently with regards to like a Martin Luther King and a Malcolm X, which is, is a little bit different because they both were actually about direct action, but the, just the radicalness was a bit different. In the case of Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell, they absolutely could have worked in communion and community with one another. Unfortunately, this was a political moment and a time when the resources in support of the NAACP and in support of something like uh, ending lynching were quite limited. There was this idea that lynching was never going to go away. There was a concern that if they stood up against lynching, that would have been a hair too far, and they would have lost white allies who supported their cause. So really, the, the static or the friction that emerged between Mary Church Terrell and Ida B. Wells, it, it actually was a systemic problem, right? A lot of what we see during this time between um, you know, black political actors who are thinking about liberation for, for a black struggle their, their challenges don't come 
because they can't be in community with one another. Their challenges come because they're often having to make negotiations and compromises without group members who are supposed to be supporting all of their work, right? But unfortunately, this is the respectability thing coming back to get us, is that Mary's Church Terrell was much more respectable. She was much more digestible for Northern whites and for abolitionists who felt like the direct confrontation was scary, you know? And it, it comes up throughout the project. Uh, Professor Jackson, we have about a minute left. What a time for this book to come out as black authors are being banned, as black history is being even more whitewashed than it has been in the past. The good news is that there's such a fight against this. I just searched for black authors banned, and there's so many of these freedom bookshelves now, freedom libraries all across the country. Black authors are getting so much attention because all of the, because of all of this. I just wonder what this experience has been like for you to really dive into this work and put out a book at this time that we're in in this country. You know, it's been really interesting because I started writing this book before COVID started. I started writing this book um, before, you know, um, before Breonna Taylor was killed, before George Floyd was killed. And I finished this book um, maybe a year and a half, two years ago. So this book really takes into account a very long period of um, political unrest and um, the kind of the back and forth of, of, of power um, in this country. And it's been incredible to write during this time because I had a chance to be very vulnerable and honest about these experiences. Uh, there's a bit of memoir there, right? Obviously, I'm talking about my own experiences seeing um, Oscar Grant's uh, story unfold and being very intimately connected to it, having grown up in the same place, going to the same high school, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but being an, being an adult now, being older now, and having this moment um, to write this story has been a great honor to me. Um, and also, a great it's been a great burden and sadness, right? It's, it's not mm-hmm. easy to write about um, our four strugglers who have passed on because of the burden of the world of being erased and eradicated. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful the book is out in the world, and I just hope that it instills the kind of 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 other ways of being. You know that it challenges people to do something different, mm-hmm. to be otherwise, and pushes folks in the same way that that first you know book I picked up at Borders. You know, um, Sister Citizen. That it pushes them in the same way. I just think it's the time that we need that. Well, it's a beautiful book. Thank you so much for writing it. Professor Jen Jackson is the author of Black Women Taught Us, An Intimate History of Black Feminism. We'd love to have you back. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call.